This is going to be my sixth talk on the uh, Dada Jing, the way and its power. Uh, um, and as I've said many times, many people, including me, consider Taoism the mother of Zen and, Bo and Buddhism the father. So this, uh, I have to pull up on the screen. Um, your screen share, pull up what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, let's see. Uh, okay. Let's see now. Uh, it looks like you can see the, t the bottom part of it, or the top of it. Can you see when the Tao is forgotten? Will you raise your hand? Okay, and then I'm going to have to be able to scroll down. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you for indulging me. I'm just learning how to do this. A little slow. So I'm talking um, about these lines, and I'm just going to talk about them. Uh, when the Tao is forgotten, goodness and piety appear. Uh, so the Tao. The Tao. The Tao sounds a lot like Taragata Garba in, in Buddhism. Buddha nature. Taragata mean Buddha uh, garba mean nature or womb. Taragata garba, Buddha nature or Buddha womb. <clears throat> and Lao Tzu describes this womb, this nature, this Tao, as deep, dark, still from what all life arises and to which it returns. But we overlook it. Um, it's underneath and it's it's the inner being of everything that is manifested from and returns to that womb. And it's more overlooked this last couple of years in our society. We don't seem to have an anchor. Well, when there's chaos outside, we feel it inside. And uh, the social mores and norms that hold society together are kind of Kind of not there very much. So Taoism and Confucianism rise together in the in the sixth century, and Confucianism uh, is a wonderful counterpart to Taoism because it stresses social mores norms. Um, but uh, lots of points out that it misses the deep inner being of all life underneath those norms. So they're a wonderful complement to each other. And throughout history, we in China, we see them playing out and complementing each other, even though they're apparently conflictual. They're just not. <laughs> when the Tao is forgotten, goodness and piety appear. When the body's intelligence declines, cleverness and knowledge take over. So this frail body of ours, this wasting away Dharma container um, is deeply intelligent. 
It's intelligent. It's got its own intelligence. It's got its own Buddha nature, which is, is whole, it's whole. And um, that's in contrast to the self, the small self, the small Tim or Bill or Judy or Anne, um, which comes out of that too and needs to be taken care of, but which is a fiction because it's made up of the five aggregates. We make contact with something, we have sensations, we have perception, we have <clears throat> impulse, and then we have consciousness. The fifth aggregate, consciousness, takes over the whole thing and wants to dominate. And so uh, we get cut off from the body's intelligence. When the body's intelligence declines, Cleverness and knowledge take over. And I'm going to be doing a workshop in a couple of weeks in which we practice working with the aggregates. <clears throat> Dehypnotizing ourselves from the dominance of thinking, 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 worrying, 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 comparing, 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 so that we just come to our senses. Just come to our senses. Contact. Sensation, perception, impulse in Buddhism. <laughs> and then consciousness too. But consciousness doesn't have to control everything. It's, it's, it feels freaked out. It feels scared. That's why it does it. So instead we wake up. We wake up body. We let the division between body and mind drop away. Dogen said, let body and mind drop away. I prefer let division between, but whatever words you use, those words suffice if they point out this deeper interconnection between everything and all life. <clears throat> when the body's intelligence declines, cleverness and knowledge take over. When there is no peace in the family, filial piety begins. So again, Lao Tzu's Confucius is emphasizing filial piety, rules and be behavioral norms between a father and a son, a mother and a daughter. And uh, those rules of behavior are probably necessary. We need some rules of behavior. Of course we do. But uh, if we get caught by the rules of behavior, we overlook our just our simple interconnectedness right now, our simple intimacy right now with each other, whether we're on screen or in a different part of the world or right here. We have that. We have that. And I think I was too much of a Taoist in the 60s. We were all Taoists. Most of you weren't even born then. But we, I, 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 um, I, uh, I dissed my father because he was for the war. He was for making a lot of money. And he thought meditation was stupid. And I dissed him. Um, but I wasn't a real Taoist. I thought I was a Taoist. <laughs> it was a fake Taoist. 
<laughs> because inner being. I came out of him in a way. I came, and even though it was just much smaller than my mother's womb, I came out of him. Him and her together, inner being. We come out of each other. We are part of each other. One Buddha body. One Buddha body. So I went over a little overboard. And then later, I really worked on connecting and coming back. And not mentioning meditation ever again. Once I quit mentioning that I was a meditator, <laughs> our, life, our life together really improved, really improved. So then there was some sense of camaraderie, some sense of love for each other, which had been missing as long as I was maintaining an adversarial posture. That's the Tao. The Tao is very simple. When there is no peace in the family, filial piety begins. Though we get caught on filial piety because I got to be like this because we don't feel the peace that's always here. When the country falls into chaos, patriotism is born. Well, patriotism hasn't been so good historically. Sometimes there's an initial patriotism, which is a little bit like beginner's mind, but then we get caught in our dividedness from the other who's not part of our country, who's not part of us. Francis Bellamy wrote the Pledge of Allegiance, which we pledge, pledged in school, I think every day when I was young, every day. I don't know when we did it, but I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands. One nation, indivisible. And then when I was in the fifth grade, they added under God <laughs> with liberty and justice for all. That's, that's a wonderful sentiment, indivisible, indivisible. But we left the, the African-Americans whom we've enslaved out. And, and those men left the women out too. Many of them didn't. John Adams' wife wouldn't let him let her out, leave her out. <laughs> he sure wouldn't. <clears throat> so patriotism uh, has caused much more problems than it has helped people. Even, even when my great-great-grandfather Timothy came over here from Ireland, he had to sleep outside, and he had to live outside because he was a dirty Irish. In 1850, he was dirty Irish. Patriots wouldn't want the dirty Irish around. But then that changed, and the Irish became the in-group, and then another out-group, right? We do that. We do that. When the country falls into chaos, patriotism is born. So let's live wakefully. Let's dehypnotize ourselves and just come to our senses. Now, Fritz Perl is a psychologist in the 60s, had this expression. Lose your mind. He was also thought he was a Zen practitioner. Lose your mind and come to your senses. 
Well, we need our minds. <laughs> we did a lot of crazy stuff in the 60s. We need our mind. We don't need to lose our mind to come to our senses. Actually, from the Buddhist point of view, mind is one of the senses. It's the sixth sense. We need to honor it. But lucky to have it. <laughs> lucky to have it. Let go of holiness and cleverness. And people will do the right thing. Let go of holiness and cleverness, and people will do the right thing. So uh, my first book is, was titled Nothing Holy About It. And I didn't tell the story in the book, so my family said, what's this, Nothing Holy About It? I said, oh, I forgot to tell the story. The story is so simple, told it many times. It's mythical, but the emperor of China went to Bodhidharma after he'd been developing all these Zen temples with our meditation halls and said, what's the merit of what I've done? <laughs> what good karma have I accomplished? And Bodhidharma said, no merit, <laughs> no merit. And Bodhidharma is never, he's always, mm, mm, no merit. Actually, Bodhidharma is over there on my wall if you want. I don't think you can see him very well anyway. No merit, Bodhidharma. <laughs> he said, no merit. And then the emperor said, puzzled, said, well, then what's the first principle of your holy teaching? And Bodhidharma says, a vast spaciousness with nothing holy about it. A vast spaciousness, a vast inner being. There's nothing holy about it. Because as soon as we have, we separate the holy, the patriot, from the non-patriot, from the non-holy, we're dividing ourselves from this wonderful sense of connection with all life. No first principle and nothing holy about it. Let go of holiness and cleverness and people will be a hundred times happier. So I used to tell my teacher, or used to, my first teacher, the first year or two I was practicing, we chanted the Heart Sutra every day. And I said, explain this to me, please. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. And he said, just chant it, just chant it. You can get it in you. I will explain it to you once you get it in you. So we just chanted, I just chanted. But I did, well, I'm impatient by nature or something. Come on, come on, will you please? I didn't say come on, I wouldn't have done that. Sensei, no, I've been chanting it for a year. Just explain it to me. And he said to me, and of course I was a Stanford student. If you are too clever, you will never understand our way. Just chant it twice, or he didn't say that, but that's what I thought. <laughs> he was never like that. <laughs> but so I, we just chanted. I just kept chanting. Just kept chanting. Because <laughs> if we're too clever, we, we get it, gotta get it organized in our head. And it's already organized. Inner peaks already organized. So this is letting go of our neuromuscular lock. We get a neuromuscular lock 
and then we have the potential to let go of it and open up to this wonderful stillness that's right here, which we can call Tao or Tadagata Garba or the Godhead in which there's no trace of God, <laughs> whatever we want to call it. We letting go of our neuromuscular lock. Two of my mm, what would, habitual neuromuscular locks <clears throat> are, well, well, I'll just talk about one today. A second one is absent-mindedness. Um, and you would think, well, that's not a neuromuscular lock, but I can tell you why it is, but I'm not gonna talk about that today. I think my worst one is the world revolves around me, which I got when I was very young. The world revolves around me as the first child, the first male grandchild in many generations, the gifted child, the best in his class, the, the leader, the CE, potential CEO when I was two years old. <laughs> They never said that, but, you know, they did say that over and over again. So that becomes my neuromuscular lock. And then I you know, end up hurting myself or hurting others. And my grandson, my youngest grandson who has dysgraphia, he's got a neuromuscular lock around his dysgraphia because he's the worst student in the class. And he says, oh, I'm the worst student. I don't want to go to class. My daughter tries not to label him, but he has a sense he is the worst. They give grades. It's not an open school. And so he feels that he's the worst. So my daughter is emphasizing, oh, he likes to do the piano. You can play piano. Look how good you are. And he's good at piano. You don't have to, grisgraphia means troubled reading. In case you didn't know, I didn't know what grisgraphia meant before two years ago. Dysgraphia, can't read. He can't read. He's 12, but he can play the piano and he can play golf. And he, he's trying to read, but, it, but he can do that and enjoy that. And that helps him let go of his neuromuscular lock on not being good enough, not being good enough. Let go of holiness and cleverness and people will be a hundred times happier. Let go of morality and correctness and people will do the right thing. So doing the right thing is deeper than a moral rule or moral code or some idea of morality. Correctness is inner being. <laughs> everything is in flux. Everything is communing with each other all the time, all life. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. We cover it with some idea of morality and correctness. And I cover it often with, with a different kind of neuromuscular lock. Everybody has a different kind, but mine is pushing what I want to do forward in spite of feedback from others. And I'm really not even thinking I got the feedback when I did it, didn't. So when I do that, I just apologize. And then I pledge. I pledge to sink into inner being. Next time the lock comes into just breathe through it, breathe around it. Let go of morality and correctness and people will do the right thing. Let go of profit and loss and there won't be any thieves. 
have to move up my screen here because I want you to see it to the bottom. Yes, okay. <clears throat> Let go of profit and loss and there won't be any thieves. If these three aren't enough, just stay at the center of the circle and let all things take their course. T.S. Eliot's still point of the turning world, always here. It's often we don't feel that way, especially this last couple of years. We don't feel that way. We feel cut off. We feel agitated. We feel depressed. But then we do shikan practice. Shikan taza just to sit. But as I've said, and as other teachers have said, my teachers said, can be any activity. We just marry ourselves to the activity. She can't do the activity. My second teacher, Katagiri Roshi, who is the founder of uh, Minnesota Zen Center, told us a story many times about living at a Heiji monastery in um, Japan uh, when they had basically no food. After the World War II, it was very hard. They would have so much rice, and then they'd run out. They'd run out of food, and he's the assistant tensile. <clears throat> so his job is to go out and find weeds. He uses the term weeds. I guess they don't know about you know, lambs quarters and things like those, <laughs> like that. And then come back, bring them back, and they make weed soup, and they serve the monks weed soup in all three bowls. In all three bowls, weed soup. So that's hard. That's hard. He had a hard time doing that practice, and he was hungry himself. Although he did say that they had nutritious weeds, and they must have had some rice, a little bit of rice. But that was, he, he said, that was my shikan practice, just to go out and pick the weeds, just to gently put them in the, in the basket, bring them back, cook them up, give them to the Atenzo who would cook them up, and then serve them, and then serve them. And that helps him come to the center of the circle because that we're really always at it, but we go off, we go off. But marrying ourselves to the activity we're doing is a wonderful way of coming back, coming back. If these three aren't enough, just stay at the center of the circle and let all things take their course. Let go of your thinking and your problems fall away. That's how we practice shikan. We just do our best to find good weeds and make the soup. Other people are excited. <clears throat> oh, I have to scroll down. Oh, it looks like I can't scroll down. It looks like it's cut off. So I'm gonna I'm gonna actually type it in here. <clears throat> Other people are excited.
as oops so they were at a parade I enjoy <laughs> excuse me Other people are excited as though they were out of friend. I enjoy just being completely completely expression less like an infant sound. A sweep. So I think you know that in meditation, generally, if our meditation is pretty deep, we're able to move from alpha waves to beta waves. Oh, no, excuse me, to theta waves. To theta waves. Slower waves. And then if our meditation is really deep, Delta waves, delta waves. And research has been done on babies who are sleeping, and they generally have delta waves when they sleep. <laughs> a sleeping baby, a sleeping baby. You notice how soft their skin is when they sleep, how just content they are when they sleep, not after they wake up, but while they sleep. Delta waves. Delta waves through our patient and persistent meditation practice. Meditation practice. 10,000 hours, 20,000 hours, 30,000 hours. Wow. After a while, we just get a little discouraged, but we just keep at it. We keep at it. Other people cling to their own. Oops. Oh, now you want to. Hmm. Are you still there? I, I went away. Yeah. Yes, we're here. Away. Huh. Sorry. I just went away. Um, so other people think to what they want. I alone enjoy the ebb and flow of life. I think I'm just going to talk now because I, I, it's already almost 10.30. I alone enjoy the ebb and flow of life. So lots of times I talk about the surfboard analogy. Shikantaza, just to sit, is body surfing. That's body surfing, just being in the ocean. The ocean will support you. But sometimes we need a surfboard. We need to use our breathing or counting our breathing or a mantra so that we can enjoy the ebb and flow of the waves in the ocean, 
in the big ocean of our consciousness. Other people cling to what they want. I alone enjoy the ebb and flow of life. Then he says, I am like an idiot. My mind is so empty. And now I'm going to quote Kazan, the, uh, considered the mother of Soto Zen in Japan. Kazan. Putting aside all concerns, shed all attachments, do nothing at all. Don't fabricate any things with the six senses. So again, he's saying, don't, don't, the sixth sense, remember, is mind. Don't fabricate things with the mind so that you ignore the first five. It's fun to, wonderful to have imagination. We should use imagination and be creative, but don't cover up the, the first five senses and, and, and split yourself off from them. Enjoy them. Let your life emanate from the Tao, which includes them all includes them all. Then Kazan says, who is this? Its name is unknown. It cannot be called body. It cannot be called mind. It is a fool, an idiot, as high as a mountain, deep as the ocean. Without peak or depths, its brilliance is unthinkable. It shows itself silently. So when we live inside just our own mind, we miss this. This, this brilliance unthinkable because it's beyond thinking it doesn't kick thinking out it's just beyond the limitation of thinking so i'm going to tell before i end i'm going to tell uh one story and give one quote from my last my book that i'm working on right now um uh so we identify with any feeling or thought or story or idea. It's just natural. So I met my teacher in San Francisco one day, many, many years ago, walking back. He was walking back from the grocery store and he said, look what I have. And he opened up his, his sack and he had vegetables inside. I looked and I thought, oh, hmm. And he said, then he looked at me and he said, only two days old. And immediately, what had looked like beautiful vegetables <laughs> looked, looked awful. <laughs> and I was appalled, although I didn't say that to him. Remember, he's a monk from Japan where they didn't have much food. So for him, <laughs> this is wonderful. This is wonderful for me. And he said, oh, Come over tonight, I will make soup. And I said, no, thank you, sensei. I gotta go. And I, ran, I went down the street. So our preconception, right? He probably made wonderful soup with those two-day-old vegetables. None of, them, none of them were rotten, although the minute he said two-day-old, I just, they all seemed, they all were rotten in my mind. Isn't that quickly? We, we, we grab onto these things quickly. And then he says, uh, other people are bright, I alone and dark. So again, other people cling to what they want. I alone enjoy the ebb and flow of life. I am like an idiot. My mind is so empty. 
Other people are bright, high, alone, and dark. So I talk about this in my book that I'm working on right now. And uh, uh, I call it the section in darkenment. And I say, Kali, the dark goddess, the great mother, is the manifestation of chaos and destruction, as well as inspiration and creativity. She's pitch black. She's the great mystery. She's inconceivable. What I don't say is that she's Tadagata Garba, <laughs> that she's the Tao. <laughs> but it doesn't matter what you say. She's here. <laughs> she's emanating us. <laughs> then I go on to say, you may have an enlightenment experience and believe some aspect of reality has been revealed to you. But what can we say about endarkenment? Nothing. This womb, our womb, is totally dark. But it is not anti-light. It includes light, inspiring us to birth something wonderful in the world, <laughs> even if it's just weeds for weed soup. <laughs> I don't say that in the book, because within darkness there is light. So his last couplet that I'm going to end on is, just stay at the circle, just stay at the center of the circle, and let all things take their course. So when we don't have enough of what we want, enough, we all have enough food, but we, we don't have enough psychological interpersonal nurturance. Finally, a group of people is back at Zen Center today. Wasn't it wonderful to see each other? And some of you still are home. It's a cold day today, or maybe you don't want to take the risk, or maybe you're in a different state. <laughs> Just stay at the center of the circle. It's always here. Let all things take their course. Sometimes we have to, our job is just to go out and gather weeds for weed soup, to make soup when we feel like we're not at the circle. But if we just marry ourselves to that activity, whatever it is, we manifest that stillness. We feel that. Dogen calls this actional understanding, actional, A-C-T-I-O-N-A-L. Any understanding that's it just in our hands isn't alive. It's not alive. It doesn't manifest interdependence. So that's actual understanding. I don't know without that translating that word, but I, I haven't been able to see a better translation for it. <clears throat> anyway, I think that's all. Stop sharing now. And um, uh, see that there's some time for questions or comments. Happy to have questions or comments from anyone. It's Emmett's call. It's, uh, let's see, raise your hand. Uh, Paul? Call. I'm in the Zendo. Oh, yeah. Where are you? Are you on the second screen? I, I like to see the person. Cole is here somewhere. Let's see. Maybe you're on. 
We're in the Zen Maybe I can't see you, but go ahead and ask your question, Cole. So I guess one thing I was thinking about was when we say taking refuge in Buddha, um, one way to interpret is taking refuge in, in your teacher. Another way I've kind of heard it is like taking refuge in kind of like the, the ecosystem or the universe. Um, would, would it be... Could you kind of connect taking refuge in Buddha with also taking refuge in the Tao to some extent, or are those two unrelated? Or just different words for the same, same reality, the big reality, <laughs> the nameless reality that includes all names. <laughs> yes, but we need specificity sometimes. We need specificity to take refuge in that which is beyond specificity because we're caught we're stuck so i take refuge in this picture of bodhidharma i don't know why i would take refuge he sounds so i wanted to show him to you but i can't he sounds he looks so grumpy but i do take refuge in him um, because his practice of just sitting facing that wall you know more than 50 years and it's, it's I want to tell you something, it's getting harder for me because of my body, not my mind. But now I have to sit in a chair mostly. Uh, and that's just part of, but I take refuge in him. He, he helps me when I get discouraged. He helps me wake up to inner being. We're all in the same situation. We all have some physical or mental pain. I may not have much mental, but I'm sure getting a lot of physicals <laughs> compensate for it. <laughs> wow, what, what a life. So that specificity of Buddha helps me settle in to inner being. Having Bodhidharma's picture right there to encourage me, helps me. I can't see you at all, but uh, I don't know. Do you have a follow-up or how are you, how are you doing? Is that, how's that feel? Oh, that, that was good, thank you. You're, you're welcome, you're welcome. What else, who else? If you don't have a question or a comment, maybe you'd like to tell a story. <laughs> or sing a song. <laughs> Tim, uh, Raymond? Raymond, let's see. Raymond, or see if I can find you. I'm not using my camera, so. Oh, okay, well, I don't no. need to find you then, okay. Not a comment, just thank you. Uh, it is great to see you. Thank you for this talk. You've given me uh, a lot to think and uh, meditate over. Thank oh. you. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. I look forward to seeing you, Raymond. Uh, I will see you again someday. I'm con Oh, actually, we have an appointment to actually see each other. Do, or do are we? Yeah, I think we do. Saturday but, at 8 a.m. Is it in person or on screen? It can be either, but right now it's a uh, screen. Oh, okay. 
actually seeing people in person. Wow. <laughs> exciting, isn't it? <laughs> and not that it isn't exciting to see you guys on the screen. <laughs> A little more time just to sit here quietly or talk with each other. Good morning, Tim. It's Margaret. Hi, Margaret. Um, I wanted to thank you for this. I've I probably read this uh, half a century ago. <laughs> With absolutely no understandings, and so it's it's nice, you know. I'm coming back to it. Um, I just I've been thinking a lot about this living in chaos lately, <laughs> and you know, like everybody, especially on a cold morning like today, you know, you're very tired of the cold. You're very tired of COVID, and you're tired of what governments are doing right now. And so, you know, this sense of chaos is, um, is very strongly felt, I think, by a lot of us. Um, I think I take a lot of comfort in this text and it's so old. <laughs> it's been around for so long and, and yet it still rings true. And it's comforting to know the Chinese survived <laughs> for so long. And maybe they're not as good as we'd like to think they are, but <laughs> they certainly have been able to offer us a great deal. Um, I don't know. I think that is the value of our practice is that you'd have to sit with something that's not very pleasant, but you're urged to stay there. And I know for myself, you know, I've noticed, you know, the things that I've been able to change my own thinking by just kind of sitting in the middle of this mess. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just wanted to let you know I was grateful for this reminder. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm grateful for you for your, your willingness to just keep doing Shikan in spite of it all. Just keep coming back to being with whatever activity we're committing ourselves to over and over again. And that does quiet the mind. That does quiet the mind. But without zazen as a background, without really spending time in meditation, whether you call it zazen or not, it's hard to do shikan off the cushion. Even, in, even with all, all the cushions, still it's time, hard to do it off the cushion. But it's what we do. It's what we do. Because we, we, <laughs> we know, we all know at some level that we're rooted in something deep. We all know that. We may forget it, but we know it. We know it. We wouldn't be here today if we didn't know it. I think so, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Margaret. Well, I think I felt a lot more permission to be messy in my Zen. <laughs> also, living in the messiness, but to keep coming back to it because it's not ever going to be perfect, right? Perfect is just right. an idea in my head. Right. Um, right. But it, you know, it's, it's like a kind of, for me, it's become kind of like a, a, a wave, you know, or a, a sense of, of uh, being in tune with whatever's going on, you know, that I just stay there. And then Zen gives me a way 
to stay connected and not descend into the, what is it uh, he said, the cleverness and knowledge taking over, which would be a tendency I would have <laughs> to just be clever. <laughs> so I'm resisting that urge by staying in Zazen. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, and I'm, I'm being facetious here, but I'm still a little annoyed at my teacher for not explaining the heart super. <laughs> Although I love him, I'm not, I'm not, I understand why he didn't do it, but it, it does annoy me still more than 50 years later because it's very, there's a lot, lot to it. It's not just arbitrary words. Those words are all, all uh, fit together meticulously like a Swiss watch, but he would have probably had to take 10 weeks explaining it to me because it, it, the whole history of Buddhism is in there. <laughs> and he wanted me to get out of my head. <laughs> I don't know about you, Tim, but even if 50 years ago, if somebody had sat down and tried to explain the Heart Sutra to me, I would have still been confused. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough Zazen yet. <laughs> well, time for one more, or we, or we can just set it two or three more minutes. Tim, this is Tom. Oh, hi, Tom. Hi. Um, thanks for the talk today. I've really enjoyed your talks on Taoism. It's something I have only had vague awareness of, and it's intriguing me to dig into it more deeply. I, I it arose for me when you read the passage, when the body's intelligence declines, cleverness and knowledge take over. And then you said at some point, you know, consciousness wants to take over. Um, what I notice in my practice is that often anger and delusion and anxiety arise in my body first. Yes. And, and emerge from that. And, and sometimes my consciousness is sort of like um, a magnifying glass that I can use to start examining that. And so consciousness becomes very useful to me. Good, good. So if we if we are practicing bare awareness, instead of consciousness chattering, 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 we can we can bring it back to the projection that it's showing us in terms of pain around my heart or pain in my neck. Uh, we can do that, and that's just wonderful. Consciousness has a laser beam potential but we disperse it with all this stuff but if as one of the six senses it's vitally important in doing just what you're talking about tom good for you good thank for you, you. <clears throat> tim uh, i had a question sure i wonder if you could speak to uh he mentions the circle with the point in the middle of it yes uh, can you say something about that? Well, uh, so this is a, a, a Buddhist and a Taoist metaphor that there, and, an, and a Native American metaphor that there's a circle of life, that all life is circular. It's not square. It's circular because everything is flowing. It's a circle of life. And we get caught on the periphery by all of our worries and concerns or our discouragement or anxiety. But the center of the circle 
is always still. It's always still. And uh, uh, if we could just come back to the center. And the, as I was saying today, through our meditation practice, through our uh, three treasure practice, through our shikan practice, we're coming back to the center. We're coming back to the center. Um, but the center is always here. And there is some poem, I think, is it, is it Keats or Yeats has a poem about the center holding, the center will not hold, but actually the center always holds. <laughs> Tim, you know, Tim, you're Irish. What's the phrase about the center holding? Yeah, yeah I believe that's uh, Yeats. Yeah, Yeats. But I guess he didn't know she cantaza. <laughs> I guess not, although he is a wonderful mystic. Yeah. He really is wonderful. <laughs> but the center does hold. Uh, it's not trying to hold. Everything emanates from it. Everything emanates from the stillness of Tadagatagarpa, the Buddha womb. But you don't need to say Buddha womb, that's extra. Circle does hold. It holds us. It embraces us always. Even when I think I'm the center of the universe, as I got acculturated to do, more than you guys, way more than you. And then I heard someone, I can come back to the center, breathe, apologize, feel the connection with everyone and everything. So now it's time for me to pass this on to the dawn. And uh, I hope you all have a good day. Thank you, Kevin.